Kia ora everyone, it's uh, really great to be with you uh, this morning. My name is Matt, I'm one of the leaders here at St Augustine's and I hope you've had an amazing summer. Uh, I have had uh, an unforgettable summer actually because this has been the summer that I found out that I am going to be a dad. Yeah. Which in any other church would be uh, significant, but at St Augustine's I'm really just joining the breeding club we've got going here. Uh, here is... Uh, my baby waving hello, looks just like its mother, which no one even knows if that's a compliment at this stage or not. Um, when I found out we, uh, we are pregnant, I did what any good millennial would do, and uh, I downloaded a bunch of apps to tell me how to raise my child. Um, but I found that, that these apps mostly just tell me what size my unborn child is comparatively to uh, fruit, animals, and other objects. So just to update you all, uh, uh, this week... My child is the size of a PlayStation controller, a Pop-Tart, a large onion, and a baby hedgehog, which sounds especially painful. Um, and I've been learning lots about pregnancy this summer as well. I never knew about uh, super smell, that um, pregnant women get the super smell, which is a bit of a deadly combo with uh, the nausea that they get. Uh, and we, we recently moved house, which is a, a fun thing to do with a pregnant wife. And I thought it would be a good idea to get rid of some stuff. So I, um, I took her on a trip to the dump, uh, which I learned isn't actually a great idea. Um, I, I also thought it would be a good idea to take her to the Gannett Colony at Mildewai. Uh, and she, she didn't love that experience, I'm not, <laughs> not going to lie. Um, so it's been, it's been an exciting um, summer for us in the Mason household, and it's been an exciting summer here as well. We've been doing this series called Centering Psalms, uh, where we're kind of reorienting, um, reorientating ourselves, uh, using the Psalms to kind of set us up for, for the year. And today I'm, uh, I'm kicking things, um, I'm landing things uh, with Psalm 32, which you have just heard. And today's psalm, Psalm 32, was actually our namesakes, uh, the great theologian St. Augustine's. It was his favourite psalm. Augustine actually had this particular psalm inscribed onto his bedroom wall uh, before he died in order to meditate on it. Uh, for him, the psalm was essential to the Christian faith and um, resonated with him uh, personally in a powerful way, even in his last moments. And as I read this psalm, and I reflected on it, and I reflected on the fact that this was St. Augustine's favorite psalm. I couldn't help but think, what was he smoking? Because of all the psalms, from the poetry of the deer thirsting by the water in Psalm 42, to the metaphysics of Psalm 8, to the most awe-inspiring theology of Psalm 139, this is the psalm that the greatest theologian of all time chose to display on his wall, like I used to with my Green Day poster and Intermediate. And if I'm honest, I think the reason I reacted this way is because of the content of the psalm. I think I reacted this way because this is a psalm about sin. It's a psalm about acknowledging the sinfulness and shortcoming of humanity. We hear, happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And there's just something about the word sin that feels a bit, a bit uh, naff and a bit cringy 
It's like a dabbing youth pastor or the Blues trying to win a super rugby title. It's just a bit embarrassing, really. And in a post-Christian world, it's a word that many of us are familiar with, but few have actually spent time reflecting on the meaning or especially the implications of. The word sin lingers around in the Western vocabulary because our culture is smudged over with half-legible religious scrawlings. It's the remnants of a Christian worldview. The the word sin remains uh, in the Western lexicon, but it's been appropriated for different ends. Uh, It's often used in kind of contemporary figures of speech. Maybe you've heard of committing the cardinal sin or uh, that your sin will find you out or that someone was guilty as sin. And so this word sin uh, conjures up all kinds of images and ideas. One could even call them synonyms. (laughs) I've never had a groan before, this is great. (laughs) I'm not even a dad yet, you like that Andy? You like that? Uh, In the marketplace, Uh, Sin is often synonymous with pleasurable consumption, indulging in guilty pleasures. It's used a way of uh, profiling a naughty treat uh, to indulge in maybe ice cream, chocolate, wine, lingerie. Uh, Or on the flip side, sinlessness can apparently be attached to the lack of sugar and tomato sauce. An analysis of 764 media publications has shown the word sin coming up in a number of domains, albeit often ironically or colloquially. The word sin is most often used actually in sports articles, where the word sin bin is used regularly uh, for when sports players are sent off the field for committing unsportsperson-like conduct. In uh, finance and economics, uh, sin is um, often used as well. We talk about sin stocks, uh, stocks that are invested in questionable industries, and sin taxes that are placed on pleasurable consumption such as cigarettes, alcohol, or perhaps even sugar in the future. Uh, In the church, uh, sin has often been synonymous with actions that break God's rules. Allison Research conducted uh, research in the States of Christian perceptions on sin and found that overwhelmingly, the data indicated that Americans think of sin only in terms of what we do and not who we are, that sins are merely a perpetual list of wrong actions that God keeps of us, Santa Claus styles, until we ask for forgiveness. New Zealand theologian Dale Campbell has done some research called Sin in Secular Ears, where he interviewed secular New Zealanders on their perceptions of the word sin, when he asked uh, non-religious New Zealanders to define sin, they said the following an action or thought specifically forbidden by their God, doing what the Bible tells you not to do, specific rules in the Bible that should never be broken, moral wrongs that we commit, or any act or deed or thought deemed wrong by God. Which is actually kind of relatively close to the churchgoer's perception of the word sin as well. But what we see in all these uh, synonyms of sin is they all put the focus on sin as something we do and it being an action. More often than not, we spend a lot of time thinking about the, the word sin as a verb. But 
This view of sin being an action isn't enough. Theologian Daniel Meliori says this. He says, We misunderstand the depth of sin if we see it merely as a violation of a moral code, a deviation from conventional behavior, or doing something commonly considered bad. And we really need to understand the depth of sin because our our understanding of the significance of sin is actually tied to the significance of Jesus. If we call Jesus uh, our saviour, it pays to know actually what he's saving us from. We need to know the sickness to understand the cure because if you get the diagnosis wrong, then you get the treatment wrong. And so when we look at the breadth of scripture, the um, theological and philosophical tradition of the church, we see that sin isn't just a rule-breaking activity, isn't just an action uh, or a verb. It's not just doing the wrong thing and then needing forgiveness for that thing, but it's actually a power over our life. It actually describes the propensity for humans to, to disrupt the flourishing of the world, both in our relationship with others, with God, and our creation. Sin is not just the act of disrupting the flourishing of the world, it's the actual disposition to do so. It's a state of the human condition. Paul, in lamenting the power of sin in his life, in Romans, says this, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. And I think this is a really powerful description of the human condition because it seems like there's a gap between the people that we can imagine ourselves to be and the people that we actually are. There's something that prevents us from being the kind of people that we know that we could be, but by our own will can't actualize. Deep down in ourselves, we all have the propensity to stuff things up. And this is actually the author Francis Spufford's definition of sin the H-P-T-S-T-U, the human propensity to stuff things up. He actually uses a different word than stuff, a much naughtier word, but you will not hear a good Baptist boy like me cuss like that naughty Anglican. Um, But something that unites all of humanity is this propensity to stuff things up. Almost every religion, every worldview acknowledges this, um, this problem and offers its own solution. There's a universal... Uh, acknowledgement that humanity is not what it could be. And even in the non-religious West, we hear uh, the relatively understated concessions that no one is perfect and that everyone makes mistakes. And nowhere is this human propensity to stuff things up more clearly on display than in the history of the Olympic torch. Am I right? We're doing this, by the way. (laughs) Most people think the Olympic torch was a tradition passed down by the ancient Greeks. Uh, But actually, only the cauldron was, not the Olympic torch. Uh, The torch relay was actually a made-up tradition. And unfortunately, it found its origins in the 1936 Olympics as a symbolic piece of Aryan propaganda for Nazi Germany which isn't great. Uh, But the tradition is to keep the flame, the Olympic spirit, alive. That's the one job. Keep the flame alive. Get it to the opening ceremony. That's it. And this is people's real, actual, full-time jobs. And I know this because I stalked them on LinkedIn and actually found them. Um, But somehow, people keep stuffing this up. We're going to work backwards 
from the 2016 Rio Olympics. This was a controversial Olympics because of general corruption, lavish spending, and the bulldozing of houses to make stadiums. And as it turns out, uh, running through those same communities in which you have bulldozed uh, with the Olympic torch is a recipe for disaster. Hordes of people committed themselves to the task of putting the Olympic spirit out. Just to make things harder for themselves, uh, they also had a Jaguar as part of the torch relay that subsequently got spooked by the fire, uh, escaped and was shot in the streets. Love the Olympic spirit. Sochi 2014. The Olympic torch literally goes out five minutes into the relay, despite being made by a well-known missile manufacturer. <laughs> a Russian man on the street casually reignites it. <laughs> London, 2012. They took it white water rafting. <laughs> and unbelievably, it got wet and went out. <laughs> What's wrong with these people? <laughs> Also, a gust of wind uh, blows out the torch in the beginning of the ceremony, leaving this poor woman standing there on international TV looking utterly panicked. Sydney, 2000. They took it on a boat. It went out. Montreal, 1976. They, <laughs> they ran out of time to build the roof <laughs> on the stadium. It rained, <laughs> and the torch kept going out. <laughs> Melbourne, 1956. Prankster Larry, uh, Barry Larkin runs onto the course, escorted by a friend on a motorbike, and somehow makes it to presenting the torch to the mayor, which he hands over. The torch was actually a table leg with a can of plums nailed to it. <laughs> but I've saved the best to last, or the worst to last, actually. Seoul, 1988. At the ceremony, they released 500 doves. It was a beautiful spectacle. Uh, but once released, the doves all fly up to the unlit Olympic cauldron to have a sit down. The torchbearer comes up to the cauldron with the Olympic torch, and unfortunately, the show must go on. <laughs> the Olympic flame and spirit commits avian genocide by incinerating <laughs> these poor doves in front of the world's sporting fans. Humans all have a propensity to stuff things up. We find ourselves doing the very things, the very things we don't want to do. This is why uh, theologian Cornelius Plantinga observes this. He says, The real human predicament, as Scripture reveals, is that inexplicably, irrationally, we all keep living our lives against what's good for us. We live against ourselves. And so sin isn't just doing bad things. It's also uh, our seemingly unstoppable propensity to do wrong in the world. It's actually a power that's over us. And so how does Jesus fix this problem of sin? Of course, uh, most of us are familiar with the idea that Jesus forgives our sin. But I think it leaves out two important uh, things that Jesus does. As well as forgiveness, he also responds through picture and through power. Picture because he gives us a picture of what sinless humanity actually looks like. Without Jesus, we have no way of deciphering what true humanity looks like. A psalm today tells us that without guidance from God, we are directionless like a horse or mule. 
But in Jesus becoming human, it shows us not only the image of the invisible God, but shows us what sinless humanity looks like. He gives us the only, the only picture we have of a sinless human life. And so ultimately in God becoming human, he gives us a, a compass of true humanity. He's the true north of human nature. And because we are his Im- image bearers, we have the spiritual scaffolding to become the picture that Jesus has provided us with. But he doesn't just give us the picture of sinlessness. He also gives us the power to become sinless as well. Despite what our culture often offers up to us, self-help actually isn't enough for us. What we need is we need something external and transcendent and all-powerful to transform our lives. And that's what Jesus offers. To reverse Paul's words, that's how we actually end up doing the things we want to do and not doing the things that we don't want to do. We need the power of the divine, the power of the true and perfect God become the true and perfect human. Our psalm today says that God will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go and will counsel you with eyes upon you. God offers his own will up to us so that we will desire what's good and true and beautiful and gives us the power and the disposition to resist that which is harmful. But to access the picture and power of Jesus, we have to humble ourselves and confess the true nature of our humanity. Going back to why Psalm 32 is St. Augustine's favorite psalm, he actually said this. He said, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. St. Augustine knew the importance of diagnosing the human condition correctly. Because if we get that wrong, then we get everything else wrong as well. That life without acknowledging our propensity to stuff things up is actually a life lived in delusion. That if we humble ourselves as sinners, we gain access to not only forgiveness, but also the picture and the power of Jesus to overcome sin. And that if we uh, humble ourselves of, um, as sinners, we free ourselves from the anxiety of trying to be perfect and from the burden of trying to save the world. And what our psalm suggests is our starting place for all of this is confession. Confession is where we humbly acknowledge God, uh, acknowledge to God our shortcomings and invite his will to renovate and transform our hearts. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read the psalm again. And as I do so, uh, I'm going to ask that you take this space, uh, take the opportunity to use the space as a time to confess. Perhaps you've actually never simply said to God, I'm a sinner. I'm not fulfilling my image-bearing potential. I'm falling short of what you have created created me to be, and I want help. I want the power of your spirit in my life to transform me. Or maybe there's particular parts of your life that you haven't acknowledged to God before, rooms in the house of your soul that you haven't opened yet. Or maybe you feel like you're stuffing things up and you need the guidance and wisdom of Christ to help you. So I invite you to 
uh, close your eyes right now uh, and confess uh, to God as we hear the words of Psalm 32 one more time. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then... I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray together. God, we so desire to be like your son, Jesus. We so desire to become the true and best versions of ourselves. But we and the rest of humanity often fall short. May we humble ourselves and acknowledge this reality. May we embrace the picture of humanity that you provide in your son Jesus. And may we be open to the power of your spirit that overcomes sin. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.